This is Dr. Sarah Howard. The Pure Animal Podcast is growing. We're so excited to share our new Pure Animal Ambassadors with you. Join us monthly as we continue to dive deep into the most recent, relevant and interesting topics with our new team members. Associate Professor Wendy Boltzer, Small Animal Surgeon. Dr. Meng Siak, Veterinary Dermatologist. Dr. Nicole Rue, Integrative Veterinarian. And Professor Caroline Mansfield, who's a Small Animal Internal Medicine Specialist. We're thrilled about our new offering and we're sure you'll be able to find inspiration for your practice through the clinical wisdom of our new ambassadors. Welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast, where we enlighten veterinary workers, animal lovers and pet parents about integrative approaches to veterinary medicine and pet health. The Pure Animal Podcast acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia, we pay our respects to elders past and present. I'm Dr. Sarah Howard. Joining us today is Professor Caroline Mansfield to discuss feline digestive disorders. Professor Mansfield is a registered specialist in small animal medicine, and she is recognised as an international leader in veterinary internal medicine. She graduated from Murdoch University and worked in mixed animal and small animal practice in Australia and the UK before completing a residency in small animal medicine at University College in Dublin. I am so pleased to announce that Professor Mansfield has joined our Pure Animal team as an educator and ambassador in the field of small animal internal medicine. Hello, Caroline. We are so excited to welcome you to the Pure Animal team and we are really looking forward to rolling out some fantastic educational content together. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. I'm really excited and pleased to to be starting this adventure and starting out with this topic. It's a it's a really it's a really fantastic topic that I think is, um, you know, a little bit under underdone um, in veterinary medicine. Mm. So yeah, very exciting. I completely agree. And today we're going to be talking all about cats and specifically mm-hmm. all about feline digestive. Uh, disease and disorders and health and we're going to start with what are some of the most common digestive disorders in cats and the signs and symptoms that you see in practice? So I think I think that's that's a that's a pretty big topic to start with. That's a very big question to start with um, <laughs> because I think with uh, a vast I think for I think chronic digestive disease in cats is um, markedly under-recognised. And I think that's because as compared to, to dogs, when we talk about, you know, chronic enteropathies, um, you know, there's often um, visible and trackable by the owner, diarrhoea or vomiting that um, often precedes really severe clinical signs. Um, mm-hmm. But whereas with cats, um, I actually think the most common, if it's just purely an isolated intestinal disease, um, is actually weight loss um, with or yeah, without um, inappetence. Yeah. And so they, there is, uh, a, you know, an increasing amount of evidence to suggest that a large percentage of um, cats that are older, so, you know, older than 10 or 11, um, have some degree of chronic intestinal disease, whether it's the chronic enteropathy, which I'll talk about, or whether it's a small cell lymphoma. And so there are some studies that suggest that up to 50% of cats over the age of 10 might actually have one of these conditions. But um, that's also the age where they start to develop um, general age-related changes and also, 
you know, comorbidities with kidney disease and so on. And so I think sometimes yeah. the contribution of the gut to that um, clinical signs of weight loss um, and particularly sarcopenia, which is the loss of muscle mass, is underappreciated. Um, mm. So by far the most common condition is chronic enteropathy. And um, mm-hmm. I, there's a little bit of debate amongst gastroenterologists about about how you know how that is classified and subclassified but um you know most consistently people feel that um if the clinical signs have been present for more than three weeks it counts as a chronic enteropathy um and uh that probably about 50 percent of cats with chronic enteropathy have a food responsive enteropathy or diet responsive enteropathy depending on which which acronym you you wish to choose. Um, And then the other subset of that chronic enteropathy is um, what is probably termed loosely inflammatory bowel disease or a steroid-responsive enteropathy. And I I use that classification slightly differently um, than I do in dogs because I have have another category um, that I include in dogs, which is, you know, when we want to modify the microbiome. It used to be called antibiotic-responsive enteropathy. And I actually don't put that classification in cats um, because I uh, believe that if antibiotics are going to be having an impact or an effect in cats, it's probably not because of intestinal disease. It's either due to concurrent biliary tract or pancreatic disease. And then, of course, we have small cell lymphoma. Um, Mm -hmm. And there is another school of thought that small cell lymphoma is... um, you know, is a progression of inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, right. You know, so it's that pre-existing inflammation that's been there chronically um, and it causes triggers and changes and a, a transformation to that small cell lymphoma. And I find that when I have cats that are presenting, and, you know, of course I kind of see the extreme end of those cases, um, when questioned they've actually had clinical signs of intestinal disease up, you know, for many years um, mm. but they've been considered mild or normal um, for for a cat, um, mm. but they probably have had a degree of enteropathy for a long time, particularly before they, you know, develop really florid signs or um, before, uh, you know, they, they have um, a diagnosis of lymphoma. Um, I also see yeah, a lot of large sure. cell lymphoma. Um, okay. Uh, that's nastier um, and that's much easier to diagnose to be honest because usually there's either massive lymph node enlargement or an intestinal mass that you can palpate um, okay. so that would be yeah. the most common one yeah I think I think there are some other emerging conditions that you know we need to be aware of and so if a cat presents with um, large intestinal diarrhea so um, you know mucoid feces and hematochesia then mm-hmm. um, then Straining trichomonas fetus yeah. is probably something, tri-trich, okay. I, always say, yep. I forget the double T, um, is probably something that I would want to rule out. Um, and then there's also an increasing awareness of exocrine pancreatic insufficiency or EPI. Yeah, um, okay, right. In cats. It's nowhere near as common as what we see in dogs, but as compared to dogs, they don't often present with, you know, like an increased appetite, um, which can make it a little bit confusing as well. Yeah, right. Okay. That's a really good 
place to start and I already have a whole heap of questions. My first question, I know we're going to get into sort of the different diagnostics that you could use to Mm -hmm. differentiate some of these conditions which might present quite similarly. But my first question is back to what you you mentioned, if a a cat perhaps has what you'd consider subclinical enteropathy for a few years before having sort of more overt signs and its previous signs you said were considered kind of within normal limits for a cat, what is considered mm. within normal limits for a cat? Because I know that a lot of people consider vomiting and sort of bringing up hairballs quite frequently to be quite normal for cats, but perhaps it's actually a sign that there might be something going amiss in the intestinal Abs- tract. Ab- absolutely. And I, and I guess, um, you know, we actually don't know the answer as to, to what is what is normal, but, um, you know, if a cat is not a long-haired cat, then vomiting of hairballs um, particularly if they haven't vomited before, so they've been normal for, um, you know, normal for three to four years, and then they start vomiting um, hairballs, mm. and that then that to me suggests that they their intestinal tract either functionally, um, you know, or from a microbiome perspective. But either one of those ways, it's not it's not normal. Um, mm-hmm. If they've got really severe skin disease and they're grooming over grooming themselves a lot, I I would probably be a little bit more comfortable with, um, you know, suggesting that that is potentially associated with the grooming and the actual accumulation of hair. But, I mean, the the cat's intestinal tract is kind of designed to cope with fur and feathers. You know, that's um, what they normally do, right? They're prey. So um, it should cope from a motility perspective with the small amount of hair that that they groom from themselves. And so it's only if their hair's super long or they're grooming excessively that I think vomiting of hairballs is is normal more than maybe once every six months. Right. Okay. So a vomit once every six months for anyone really could be considered completely normal. However, Mm. if it becomes more frequent... Um, and then obviously coupled with other signs such as loss of appetite and weight loss, then that's when you're sort of pointing straight towards trying to investigate what's going on in the gut. Yeah, yeah. And I've had some, you know, I've had some clients where, the, you know, the cat will vomit once a week and they kind of feel that as being normal because the cat is appears to, to them to be otherwise yeah. normal. So there's no weight loss and the appetite's normal. Um, I don't think, uh, I, you know, most of my owners don't always know what the, what the stools are like um, because, you know, many cats in Australia are indoor, outdoor, but um, the ones that do, they often don't even know diarrhoea. So it's, um, you know, but when you look back at it with hindsight, that vomiting once a week is, is not normal. No. And do you see this develop at a certain age, most typically? (laughs) Clinical science? Oh, I, you know, like I said, I think, you know, most cats over the age of, like at least half of cats over the age of 10 potentially have some kind of um, enteropathy, but um, most of the time it's usually mature, like sort of seven to eight and above that, that we typically, right. I typically see them in. So if you had a younger cat that came in for, you know, sort of vomiting once a week, would that be considered a sign of I, you know very early changes or yeah something else? I guess I guess you'd have to like you know each um, each cat would have to be considered individually so if there are yeah um, other signs of concern like the um, you know there is weight loss or you know the cat's pale or there's something that you find on physical exam then maybe with a younger cat you might want to be a little bit more um, aggressive with your diagnostics to make sure you're not missing a you know, a linear foreign body or a, you yeah, know, sure. um, a, a, 
intestinal tumour that's not lymphoma, for example, that you might not be able to to palpate. Um, you know, so uh, but if the cat's very bright and very happy, then then you could and eating, then you could you know try a diet trial in those in those younger cats, being you know feeling with a little bit more confidence. Whereas yeah. once they're a little bit older, I I think it's really important to sort of rule out metabolic disease before you sort of go down diet trials and going down that pathway. So, you know, sort of doing generalised blood work and making sure they're not hypothyroid or that they have really severe, you know, chronic kidney disease or diabetes or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that blood okay. work can also give you some clues. Like if there's a very high eosinophil count, you might, you know, be thinking, um, you know, some of the eosinophilic diseases that occur in cats, you know, so there's, a, you know, that's always my baseline is I kind of want that baseline blood work. Um, yep. when, I, when I feel that there's maybe something a bit more going on with the cat. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, that's a perfect segue into discussing diagnostics. <laughs> <laughs> um, so blood work would be your starting point and then I'm assuming stool analysis would be fairly frequent as well to rule out sort of, you know, the trichomonas and other things. Yeah, you know what, for, for me it's not. I very seldom do. Oh, okay. I fairly, very seldom do um, fecal PCR, particular, well, particularly if I've got a good prophylactic history. So it's really important that you get that history when you, um, you know, when you've got a cat with GI disease. If they've got large intestinal designs, well, then yes, I will do, um, I will do a fecal PCR. I'm, I'm really only interested in the the tri- the T fetus though. Um, yeah, there's some um, suggestion that the way that you sample the feces might also improve your ability to diagnose T fetus. So, like by by actually getting a what they call a loop sample from actually within the colon rather than avoided stool sample increases your okay. um, chance of diagnosis. Um, sure. But you know, if I had a young pedigree cat that had large intestinal diarrhea, then I'd be definitely thinking about T fetus. Um, mm-hmm. But in an older cat with vomiting um, that has no diarrhea, I generally don't do faecal faecal testing. Yeah. Okay. Um, so would imaging be something that you would reach for then, sort of as the next step? Um, again, it kind of depends. So if I've done my yeah. routine screening and there's nothing there that's you know giving me alarm bells, like there's the albumin's not low, um, and there's no eosinophilia, I might I might start with a diet trial. Um, before I did, yeah, okay. and if I and obviously if I can't palpate anything on abdominal palpation, I might start with a diet trial first. If if the cat's you know sick or there's been significant weight loss or I feel something's a bit abnormal on a palpation, um, or there is that eosinophilia or low albumin, then yes, I will I will go for imaging or or ultrasound. Um, the other thing that I like to do is always measure cobalamin as well. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, and I guess um, you know the the current thinking is that if your B twelve is in the in even if it's if it's in the normal reference interval, but it's in kind of like the bottom third, mm-hmm. um, th- those cats might actually have a, a like a total tissue deficiency, and so they might still benefit from cobalamin supplementation. Um, yeah. So I think we're kind of readjusting that um, you know that paradigm. So looking at at, at those cats, I'll, I'll often supplement, and sometimes I'll supplement, start the supplementation, um, you know, before I've actually got the result back, which kind of, you know, it seems a bit unnecessary, but you kind of want to get things started. 
Yeah, sure. And are you using an injectable form of B12? Um, it depends. Uh, yeah. it, like it, it's very owner and cat dependent. So with the injectable form, like it's an injection once a week, it's a subcutaneous injection and many owners are quite happy to do that themselves or they're happy to bring mm-hmm. and it's easy for them to bring the cat in for the nurses to administer. And then I, I also do... Uh, like a subsequent um, injection at like, you know, once a week for six weeks and then I do one at eight weeks as well. And then I measure the cabalamin if it's low after that. Um, But there's been a lot of work recently to suggest that oral cabalamin, like daily oral cabalamin is just as effective as injectable. Um, It's just that for many owners and many cats, that's more difficult than the weekly injection. Yes. And would that be something, so you rec- you recommend the once a week for six weeks if you're choosing an injectable form and repeat it eight weeks. And then yeah. do you find that usually the cabalamin's restored to normal levels after that and then do you just periodically recheck it after that to see if they need another course or do you continue on? Well, if I feel that if they're clinic, if I've, if we've corrected the underlying intestinal disease, so, you know, they're gaining yeah. weight um, and... Yep you know, the clinical signs of resolved, then usually I don't they retest should be absorbing it. it. No. Yeah. 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 Okay. So we've talked about cabalamin testing, blood testing. Um, can you take us into a little bit more detail about what you'd recommend with a food trial? Yeah. So, um, you know, there's a lot of, it's a lot of debate about why these cats actually respond to food. Um, because so we, we lump these all into this sort of food responsive category. There's um, evidence that the, the cats that do respond to a food trial, um, you know, when you re- return them back to their normal diet or the diet that they were on prior to their food trial, only about 30% relapse. So they don't, most of the okay. cats don't, yeah, most of the cats don't have a true hypersensitivity. So there's probably a whole bunch of different factors that are contributing to why they respond to diet. It may be that the microbiome, um, is disrupted, there may be particular protein antigens that are within the food that they don't tolerate as well. Um, there's also a possibility that there is, um, you know, some changes with emulsifiers that are added to particular to particular cat food. Oh. So when it when it comes to, you know, like what, um, you know, what diets best. So I think we have a choice of either a, a like a novel protein diet or a hydrolyzed mm-hmm. protein diet. Most mm-hmm. yeah, so similar um, to sort of like a skin, you know, a diet trial. Yes, but a lot of the yeah, so within even within the the different brands that there are, there I guess there are different levels of diet and so some are labeled gastrointestinal diets but they're not a truly hydrolyzed protein. So um I think I think sometimes we fall into the trap of using what we call a GI therapeutic diet and then we consider that a diet trial, but I don't believe that they generally are. Um, I think most of the, um, you know, most of the, um, you know, the the sort of what I guess the commercial diets are, that they they have a higher digestibility and, and, um, and they're lower in fat, which is fantastic for, for GI disease, particularly, um, you know, some of those chronic GI signs in cats and they, they do tend to be more palatable than the hydrolyzed. But I always liked, I always prefer to start with a hydrolyzed diet um, because they, um, 
they're safer to use if your diet history is quite complex and complicated. And, uh, you know, often I find with with many owners, and I'm, I'm the same as well, you, you'll probably almost forget what proteins, you know, your animals have been exposed to because you buy a, a bunch of different varieties and there's treats and other certain things. Yeah. And, and so it's really hard to, to know sometimes what a novel what a novel protein actually is. Yeah. So the hydrolyzed yeah. diets take that um, out. Um, yep. Often the high, and they also have a higher fiber and a and lower fat content um, than many of the GI therapeutic diets or the novel protein diets. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, many of the commercial companies will also, you know, have other benefits like you know, omega threes and so on and prebiotics that will potentially be beneficial. The, the downside for that is that there's probably a lower palatability of a lot of those hydrolyzed diets for cats. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they are more expensive. Cats, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah. I guess my, my approach is to start with, uh, you know, one hydrolyzed diet, um, you know, and I'll, I'll decide what that diet's going to be based on availability and whether the cat prefers dry or tinned and how easy it is for the owner to feed that exclusively you know we often i often we talk about getting microchip feeders um you know for cats oh, in multi, yeah. multi-cat households and so on so yeah. um that we can make sure that they don't eat you know often we find that with a lot of these cats for example they might have another cat in the household that needs a urolith diet and so you, you do yes. want to kind of um split those up um yeah. i'm not against using metazapine as an appetite stimulant to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To try and transition when I transition them to the new diet a lot slower than I will with dogs. So, you know, with dogs I'll often try and transition them over a few days, but with cats, uh, you know, it's often quite like two to three weeks that we transition them to a new diet, so super slowly. Um, And occasionally I'll put a feeding tube in as well. Um, Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, uh, because a lot of these cats are really malnourished. You know, they're quite – and they need – a lot of calories and they're not going to um, get that into them um, even with the benefit of something like metazapine. So sometimes I'll use a feeding tube, uh, not mm-hmm. often, but, you know, sometimes, and it's just really just to kickstart things for the first little while and, um, you know, it's not a long-term thing. It's, it's you know, just to bridge that gap. Um, yeah. So I'll start them with I'll start them with a hydrolyzed diet. Um, if they don't tolerate that, then I'll switch them to a, what you know what I call a therapeutic GI diet. Um, yeah. Okay. And then my third choice would be a home prepared diet. Yeah, um, I was just going to ask that if you had some people who were preferring sort yeah, of home cooked diets, um, again, what your approach actually, would be. It actually ends up often being more expensive because um, of all the supplements that are required to make it completely balanced. Yeah. Um, yeah. And tricky. I like to have it formulated by a veterinary nutritionist. Yeah, um, of course. You know, and there is suggestion that there's more uh, relapse with home prepared diets because they might develop, you know, reactions to new antigens and this kind of this, you know, diet drift. Um, you know, that yeah. you know they go away from what was originally because they are often very time consuming. Um, but there have been some times when I would I will will do that. Um, yeah. So that's how that's how I I do with the diet. So I I. Usually, again, with dogs that are healthy, I'm a little bit more um, 
I stick with the diet a little bit longer, but with with cats, I'll probably only try try you know two different types, um, just because mm-hmm. the transition's often difficult. And um, you know, if these cats are malnourished and have poor body condition, yeah, I don't I don't want to be you know doing weeks and weeks of trials for them. Yeah, sure. And how long would one of these trials last? And what exactly are you looking for? Um, yeah, sort of to decide so- what to do next. Yeah, so once you've transitioned them to their new diet, you should start to see an improvement pretty quickly, so like within one mm-hmm. to two weeks. Um, and I, I do ask the clients just to keep a, you know, a record of... A diary. Yeah. A diary. Um, body weight's often a really important one and, and body condition yeah. score like and, and muscle condition score. Mm-hmm. Um, so I quite often get the onus to weigh the cats if they can um, and then... Um, you know, just keep a track of, of vomiting and um, diarrhea and appetite and, and generally things like that. There are, mm-hmm. yeah, so so that's kind of how I, so it's usually only one to two weeks. But again, I guess the the sicker the cat, the less time I give them. You know, I am yeah, not sure. as, uh, you know, whereas if, if their signs are relatively mild or the cat is relatively happy I'll um you know I'll do that a little bit longer than that but um but yeah I I don't I don't like to muck about too much no for sure and is the goal sort of if a cat does respond well to the diet intervention is the goal then to just stay on that new diet or you said that 30 (laughs) percent will then you know stay improved despite going back to the old diet well, so seventy percent will stay improved if they go back to your oh, diet. Oh, sorry, thirty percent will yeah, relapse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the question is, how long do you keep those on those diets? And that's yeah. that's a question that I, I don't know that there is the right a right answer to. It's very very individually based. Um, I I would probably prefer them to be on, you know, the the diet a minimum of three months, ideally six months before I introduce okay. them back to their regular diet. And um, yep. some owners don't want to take that risk you know they're just very very happy they continue with the diet without wanting to um, flip back and and there's absolutely no problem with that where it becomes a problem is when the diets stop stop having availability which has been a huge issue over the last couple of years with with COVID and importation we've had a whole bunch of diets that have been in short supply but um the if if they do want to change then I'll usually want them to sort of be minimum of three to six months. And then I, if they've been on the hydrolyzed diet, I'll probably switch them down to a therapeutic GI diet for the next three to six months and then yep. and then we can see how we go after that. Okay. That sounds um, really clear. Thank you. And I think we'll touch a bit more on some sort of treatment options a little bit later, but staying with diagnostics for now. So mm-hmm. um, when you do choose to use um, sort of ultrasound and imaging, are you also, um, so if you're sort of thinking of like your IBD and small cell lymphoma, are you biopsying these cats fairly frequently if they yeah, don't respond so, to the diet? Yeah, so I guess it, um, so I use the ultrasound I guess for, for two purposes. One is um, to, you know, I've, I've got clients that are a little bit anxious or whatever and I want to rule out, um, you know, rule out, other disease so that I can happily start a diet trial. Um, and then there's ones where I'm really concerned there is something. So it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, my, my concern. So if when, um, if on the screening blood work, for example, there's, you know, increased liver enzymes or something like that, um, 
I might be more inclined to take a sample of the bile, take a liver aspirate during the ultrasound. Um, Mm -hmm. If on the ultrasound the lymph nodes are enlarged, um, which doesn't help differentiate between, you know, chronic enteropathy or or small cell lymphoma, I I may take aspirates of those lymph nodes. And obviously if I see like a localised lesion within the intestinal tract, well, you know, that may suggest like a surgical excision or slash biopsy rather than, um, you know, rather than um, sampling. But I'm, I'm quite comfortable with sampling, um, you know, abnormalities that I see, um, you know, that, that I see on ultrasound um, and I'm more likely to sample the liver and biliary tract if the liver enzymes on the screening test are altered. Um, and then I probably, before I would go for biopsy, um, if there's nothing that I can see on the ultrasound, I probably would just te- check pancreatic function and inflammation, so measuring trypsin-like immunoreactivity and pancreatic lipase immunoreactivity. Yeah. Those tests tend to take a little while to come back, but they're not quick. Um, so that's sort of something that I'll do if I'm at that ultrasound stage and then planning, you know, trying a a dietary trial and then I plan the endoscopy if the diet trial hasn't succeeded. Okay, um, sure. So you're doing I, the biopsy by our endoscopy usually. Yeah, yeah. I guess if you yeah. I guess that's my jam. That's what I like to yeah. do. Um so I there is um most of the time you should be able to diagnose differentiate between small cell lymphoma and um chronic enteropathy with endoscopic biopsies. Um Okay. Full thickness biopsies are great if you, you know, if you do see a lesion or you are looking for things, um, you know, you, you see a lesion that's maybe not accessible by ultrasound um, or there's something that you may be able to correct on surgery, you know, so it's a therapeutic procedure as well as a diagnostic yeah. procedure. Yeah, of course. Um, just think the mor- morbidity is is less. Um I also used to, like with endoscopy compared to surgery, particularly for some of these old poorly conditioned cats, the other thing I think that's, um, you know, maybe changed recently uh, is that we thought that small cell lymphoma had a predilection for uh, the distal ileum and um, so, you know, colonoscopy and getting into the ileum in cats is quite challenging Um, and Mm. then the morbidity of the procedure increases because the anaesthetic is a, is a lot longer. Um, I Unless I see something on the colon, I tend to just do upper GI endoscopy now um, yeah. because with the advance in, you know, the molecular assessment of the intestinal biopsies or the duodenal biopsies, you generally don't, um, it's generally as good as get, getting histology from the distal ileum. So I'm not as, I'm not as you know, set on, on, on that anymore. Um, the other advantage with doing endoscopy as well is that you can put a feeding tube in, um, at the time. So, yeah. Yeah. And I know that, um, I don't know if this is something that's available in Australia, if you're using this, but there's some immunohistochemistry testing yeah. now that can help to differentiate if you are getting a biopsy. So IBD I guess what, what I generally do is I, I, I want to wait and see what the normal H&E like standard assessment is. And so if yep. the pathologist is um, strongly suspicious of lymphoma um, on the H&E, you don't need to do anything else. Um, okay. But if 
And where the problem is, is where the diagnosis comes back as either normal or chronic enteropathy, um, you know, slash IBD. Uh, and the question is whether you do anything additional on top of that. Most veterinary pathology services will be able to offer immunohistochemistry, so looking for, you know, monomor- like a monomorphic lymphocyte population to see whether they're T cell mm-hmm. or B cell. Um, and they can do that fairly readily as a, you know, as an add-on. Um, mm-hmm. If I see intraepithelial lymphocytes, um, even if they're low numbers, uh, if they're reported by the pathologist, I pretty much always request um, immunohistochemistry. If yeah. the immunohistochemistry is positive, then you don't need to really go further. It's just if the immunohistochemistry is equivocal or negative, then you add in PAR, which is that pattern antigen receptor rearrangement, which is a PCR test for clonality. Um, that's okay. the test that's not readily available in Australia, but most most pathology labs will, um, you know, will be able to outsource that. Um, it just Again, it's not a super quick turnaround, whereas the, um, you know, the H&E, like the normal routine histopath and and the immunohistochemistry is a lot quicker turnaround. Sure. Okay. And can you take us through, so if you have ended up with a definitive diagnosis of, of LSA, can you take us through how that then changes your treatment plan to sort of still being unsure of exactly what's going on? Yeah, so I guess with, um, you know, with chronic enteropathy, um, it's it's like a step-up treatment. So you, you, you try yeah. diet and then if, the, you know, you might try a second diet and then if that doesn't work, you step it up to steroids as long as you've, yeah. as long as you've eliminated everything else. And then if that doesn't work, then you might add in something like chlorambucil. But whereas lymphosarcoma, it's like an all-in you know, so you, you I start yeah. with prednisolone and chlorambucil, um, sure. and then I step down from there. Like I'll step yeah, step okay. down step down the pred, and then I'll, I'll step down the the diet um, because a lot of cats with with lymphoma will still um, have a partial response to diet. It's probably yeah, not as right. important that it's a hydrolyzed diet, but I think it's just those sort of GI therapeutic diets will will have a benefit um, in addition to the to the medication. Yeah, just to support the general sort of enterocyte health and yeah, the yeah, function absolutely. of the microbiome. Yeah. yeah, okay. And is your goal with treatment um, to to cure or just to palliate? So with food responsive enteropathy or chronic enteropathy, I think we can cure them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like oh, they wow. can, okay. yeah, they can, um, I mean, they might occasionally have relapses, but um, it's uncommon. Um, mm-hmm. like there's about 30% that will have relapses. Um, so I, I think, yes, we can cure those. With lymphoma, they know it's like it's a lifelong treatment and management. Um, yeah. But that life is quite prolonged. Um, you yeah. know, there are median survival times for those cats with small cell lymphoma depends on which report you read. Um, there's not a lot of recent ones actually, but most of them were sort of in the, you know, mid the, the 2010s or um, a bit earlier. Mm. Um, but they sort of show a survival time of median survival time of anywhere between sort of two to three years for cats with small cell lymphoma. Okay. What we don't really know is what's the survival time of cats with chronic enteropathy and IBD. Um, and the mm. other issue that we have is that these cohorts of cats that we're having all of this assessment on are elderly cats usually or older cats and they've 
potentially got other comorbidities. Comorbidities, um, yeah. 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 So we don't know even when they die or they're euthanized, we don't know if it's what really it because the disease is poorly controlled or there's something else going on. Yeah, for sure. And so we've talked a lot about IBD and small cell lymphoma, and I know these are really commonly seen, but you sort of touched on briefly liver disease and pancreatic disease. I'm guessing this is in this condition is the triaditis that cats can get. Can you just take us through a little bit more about that? I cannot remember (laughs) from when I was in practice. Um, So it'd be great to have a lesson again on this condition and exactly how you would manage it. So the way that the the term triaditis is, um, you know, is when there's pancreatic, intestinal and um, liver slash biliary disease. But Mm-hmm. The definition now is if there's more than more than one of those organs affected, so it's not really a triad. It could yeah, be a sure. duad. Okay. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> the the reason why it's um, considered um, an issue in cats is that cats have a common pancreatic and bile duct, um, and uh, they have a relatively high um, duodenal bacterial load, and so there's an increasing there's an increased incidence of um, cholecystitis and cholangitis with cats with inflammatory bowel disease, um, and col- and and a, and a cholecystitis when cats have got acute pancreatitis. Um, it's really unclear how often cats with chronic pancreatitis will have chronic enteropathy or small cell lymphoma. Um, because chronic pancreatitis is a really hard condition to diagnose. Um, Usually the management of either the liver or the intestinal disease for the chronic pancreatitis, like trumps chronic chronic pancreatitis, and usually the chronic pancreatitis will respond um, to the treatment of your intestinal or your liver disease. Um, Where it becomes an issue is if they're diabetic or something like that because of their chronic pancreatitis, but, um, you know, they're going to be diabetic anyway and so your management's going to change in terms of your intestinal disease. Um, sure. The other okay. issue with uh, with some of these cats is if you have a cat that, um, you know, has a, like a high body fat and then stops eating because of its intestinal disease or pancreatic disease is the development of hepatic lipidosis. So that's also something, yes. you know, to monitor and, and keep an eye out. Although I don't tend to be as worried about that with the chronic GI conditions. It's more when you have something like acute pancreatitis. Yeah, for sure. And so are you routinely treating these cats if you are suspicious of sort of um, bacterial translocation from the intestine? Do you treat them all with antibiotics? Is that still the approach? No, I don't. I used to. Um, But we know that with a lot of antibiotics like um, metronidazole, it has a pretty long-lasting impact on the GI tract, um, both functionally and, um, you know, on the microbiome functionally as well as like the community structure. So I don't like to use it unless I've identified bacteria in the biliary system or something along those lines. Okay. And that's from your bile aspirate that you would do? Yeah. Yeah. Ouch, so. yeah. Yep. Okay. That's great. And um, again, <laughs> really nice segue. I know one of your great passions is <laughs> the microbiome, Caroline. Um, so how are all these conditions impacting the microbiome and when are you trying to modulate the microbiome in your treatment plans with prebiotics and probiotics? <sighs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Just to finish off with. <laughs> yeah. There is... Um, 
you know, there's a paucity of detail in, in cats with, intest- with chronic mm. GI disease and there's a lot less known about it than there is for dogs. Um, I, I think that a lot of the diet changes that we're doing already have prebiotics in them. So, um, you know, it's uncertain as to why we're getting an improvement, whether it's the protein or whether it's the prebiotics um, in those particular cases. There is, um, you know, with probiotics, they tend to only have a a benefit or an impact on the microbiome while they're being administered. Um, Some probiotics that are designed for gut disease, I I find actually help with appetite um, and palatability. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, palatability of some um, you know, some foods. So when we're doing a diet trial, so, so sometimes I'll try that. Um, the tests, I mean, like I said, the studies have been pretty poorly designed to date um, in cats, but I'll quite often try it, um, particularly if we're um, really reluctant to try like to step up to the prednisone and the, and the corticosteroids mm. because of, you know, particularly if we've got you know, concurrent disease that makes that a really, you know, a, a suboptimal choice. So I'll, mm-hmm. I'll try probiotics. Um, do I always get a result? No. Um, and I think that's because it's highly individual. Um, yeah. And they, and I, I, yeah, I think that that is something that we need to do a lot more work on before we can um, say whether they help. I'm pretty happy that they don't do harm. Um, yeah, that's so right. Yeah. So I'm always quite comfortable in in giving them a go. I Try just them. I I just um, have not had as much luck, and I think that that may be in cats because if they don't respond to the diet, you know, then they've yeah. probably got pretty severe disease, um, inflammation, yeah. like inflammation, and we need to control that inflammation before we control the microbiome. Yeah, for sure. And are you actually adding in any sort of mucosal healing supplements or? anything to help to reduce that inflammation over and above a steroid or for long-term management? For long-term management, I try and get the steroids down. Mm. Like, you know, I reduce them every three to four weeks. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, and then the diet is probably the mainstay um, after that. Mm -hmm. Um, But, but no, I don't use mucosal, like direct mucosal acting medications because I, you know, I think we need to know a lot more about what the benefit yeah. of those are as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. There are products that, um, you know, contain clay and can improve consistency of stools. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I'm, again, I'm a little bit reluctant to use those because I don't know that it actually improves the overall, for chronic conditions anyway, I don't know that it improves the overall function um, Mm. of the GI tract. Yeah, it's just changing the stool consistency possibly. Yeah, someone gave me a really good analogy for that and they said it's like adding corn flour to your sauce, right? The sauce becomes thicker but it's still got the (laughs) same stuff in it, yeah? Um, Yeah, that's that's a very good analogy actually. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Okay, well... um, Look, I think we've 
really covered most of the common things that would be seen in in general and referral practice. Is there anything else that you feel that you want to share about this topic today, Caroline? Um, no, I guess the only the only only thing is just to sort of like putting my antimicrobial stewardship hat on. Um, yes, you know, <laughs> is uh, is I think what we also don't know um, is how um, antibiotics. Um, particularly in younger animals, um, may actually impact the incidence of GI disease and even sort of systemic or inflammatory disease because of microbiome changes. Yeah. So I think we we have to be really, really comfortable that we're using antibiotics appropriately rather, you know, I think there's always a suggestion, oh, we'll just treat it with antibiotics and see if it gets better. Um, yeah. And I think we we don't you know, we don't really know that that does no harm. Um, so I think we just have to start, I guess, rethinking that and being a little bit more careful with that as a, as a profession as well. Yeah, I love that. That's a great way to close our conversation today. And I am fully on board with the judicious use of antibiotics in in every species, actually. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, it's important for yeah. us too, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. No, I see, you know, unfortunately, sometimes my own kid's GP she's pretty quick to reach for the prescription um and I yeah I'm I'm often not following (laughs) the advice um but that's another story for another time so I I think this is a wonderful um topic today Caroline something as you mentioned that is fairly underdone in terms of um you know education of veterinary students and out in practice as well and certainly in the literature so hopefully in the future we can see a bit more emphasis on our poor cats because we know that they definitely struggle with a lot of these conditions Um, So thank you for all of your insights and and clinical wisdom today. I've really enjoyed the conversation and I'm excited to chat to you again another time. Oh, thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this month's episode of the Pure Animal Podcast. I'm Dr. Sarah Howard. Make sure you tune in next month where we'll be talking to Dr. Meng Siek about barrier health of the skin. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for individualised veterinary advice and listeners should ensure to seek advice from their pet's own veterinary professional.